expectation. And I know we've talked about it again a lot this last month, but I think it bears repeating that God's people in the time of Jesus' birth were a people who were longing. They were people who were expecting things that over 500 years earlier they'd been cast out of their land, that Jerusalem had been destroyed, they had been taken as prisoners. Even when they had returned, things were never the same. The kingdom was never the same. The temple that they rebuilt was never the same, never as glorious as that earlier temple. They were constantly under oppression, under oppression from Greeks, and they were under the oppression of Rome during the time of Jesus' birth. And even in Israel, there was religious corruption. There was longing. There was waiting. And it's into that longing and expectation that Jesus was born. And we, last week, we looked at the beginning of Luke 2 with Jesus' birth. We've talked for weeks about that longing and that expectation for that birth. And that birth has come. That longing has been answered. And so we're going to pick up this morning right after the birth of Christ. We're in Luke 2, uh, verses 21 through 40. You all let me turn there as well. It's on page 857 and 858 in your pew Bibles. So again, let's enter into that longing with the people who are waiting for the Messiah. Let's go to Luke 2, again, verses 21 through 40. So we're going to start right before that section Jesus presented at the temple. Let's go to God's word. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're thank thankful for your word, the word that pierces into our soul. It reveals our sin, reveals our need of a Savior, 
and it points us to that Savior as it reveals Christ to us. So we ask as we go to your word that you would show us Christ, you would show us what he has done for our salvation, that he is the answer to our longing hearts. Father, the grass withers, the flower fades, but your word remains forever. Amen. So I'm usually not a big title guy. I'm not very creative with my sermon titles, and I don't think this is very creative, but I do like the title this week. It's uh, from a classic Christmas hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. I think we've sung it twice during Advent. And it's a hymn about waiting. It's a hymn about longing and expectation. And our title is from the last line of the first verse of that hymn. Joy of every longing heart. Joy of every longing heart. And our main idea this morning is this. To those who long for redemption, Jesus is salvation and joy. For those who long for redemption, Jesus is salvation and joy. So like I said, this passage is following Jesus' birth. So right after Jesus' birth, we see Joseph and Mary being obedient to the Lord. Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day, as it was said that he should be. He was named Jesus, as the angel Gabriel had said that he should be. And then we see this repetition through the beginning of this passage that they did what was according to the law of the Lord. It comes up multiple times. They did what was according to the law of the Lord or according to the law of Moses. It's actually how the passage ends as well. They, they don't leave Jerusalem until they've accomplished everything according to the law of the Lord. And this is just kind of a side point, but I think it's worth noting for us uh, this obedience to the law that's surrounding Jesus' birth. And I think there's two things that we can see here. Uh, the first is the offering that they, that they gave uh, for purification for Mary after birth. It's from uh, Leviticus 12 that we see the, the rules for what should be done. And they offer, as it says, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There were two, two options for what you could offer for that sacrifice for purification. One was a year-old lamb. But if you couldn't afford the year-old lamb, you could offer either these turtle doves or these pigeons. So the, kind of the first idea is that this reinforces what we've been saying over the last month, that uh, Jesus coming into humble circumstances, that Mary and Joseph couldn't afford a year-old lamb for the sacrifice. It's not saying they were in abject poverty, Joseph had a job as a carpenter, but they were not well off. They were a fairly poor family who could only afford uh, either the turtle doves or the pigeons. But second, I think this is really important for us, that even from the time that Jesus was a newborn, he was fulfilling the law for us. Often when we think about Jesus' work of salvation, we jump all the way to Luke 23, which is Jesus' crucifixion. We say, that's what he did for our salvation. Yes, Jesus died for our salvation and rose for our salvation and ascended to heaven and he's coming again. But we shouldn't ignore all of the things that he does between Luke 1 and Luke 23. That when all of this is happening according to the law of Moses, it's that Jesus was obedient for us. That he was our representative. The terminology is that he was born under the law. That comes from Galatians 4. He was born under the law to, re to redeem those who were under the law. He came to identify with us as our substitute to obey the law for us. And I think that's really important. But again, that's kind of a side note. And it drives us into the heart of the narrative of this passage. So beyond all that, what's happening in them going to Jerusalem is it's setting up, Luke is setting up two divine appointments that happen between Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus and Simeon and Anna, these two people that we're going to look at today. And it's in those divine appointments we see why God brought them to Jerusalem that we see our main idea, again, that 
To those who long for redemption, Jesus is salvation and joy. So our first main point under the idea of Jesus being salvation and joy is that Jesus is the universal Savior. Jesus is the universal Savior. So we're introduced in verse 25 to a man named Simeon. See that he's an old man. He's from Jerusalem. It doesn't say specifically that he's old, but you can deduce that he's old from other things that happen in the passage. He's described in a few ways. We're not told his occupation He's likely not a priest or a religious leader, but we are told that he's a devout man and he's a righteous man. Those two words refer to him him being right in his relationships with other people. He's righteous and he's devout. He's right in his relationship with the Lord as well. And we're told that he's longing, that he's waiting for something. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. That terminology is related to the idea of comfort, which comes up so much in the end of Isaiah. You'll notice that we use Isaiah for our assurance of pardon. And I'm going to be quoting from Isaiah a few times uh, this morning. This idea in, in Isaiah 40 of comfort, comfort my people. But the consolation of Israel is actually used as a title for the Messiah in Isaiah 61 verse 2. So when it says he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, he's waiting for redemption. But he's specifically waiting for redemption in the coming Messiah. The one who is going to come. And we see... This man who is righteous, who is devout, who is waiting for the consolation of Israel, is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's told that he's not going to die till he sees the thing that he's waiting for. He sees the thing he's longing for. And so the Spirit leads him to the temple for this divine appointment. Just as Mary and Joseph are walking in to Jerusalem and into the temple, in comes Simeon. And he sees Jesus. And he walks up to Jesus. And I love this. He holds him. He picks him up, holds him in his arm. Can you, like, just imagine that for a second? He's not just, like, seeing Jesus and saying, that's really cool. He gets to hold him. I don't know, I think, like, just that little detail is so neat for us. He got to hold his Savior. He got to pick up the baby he had been longing for. And he sings praises. He worships, which I think any of us would do if we got to hold the baby Jesus. And he sings the fourth song that we've run into in the last two chapters in Luke. There was Mary's song, the Magnificat. Zechariah's song. Last week we saw the song of the angels, and this is the fourth song. It's sometimes called the Nunc Dimittis, which is kind of a fun word to say. That's in the Latin. It's used throughout church history in a lot of different liturgies and worship services. People have sung this song for a long time, and I want us to look at this song. I want us to dive into what Simeon is saying when he sings these things. So he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. And he could even say, because I've held your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. So, So look at those words. When Simeon saw Jesus, what did he see? Right, he saw salvation. By seeing the baby Jesus, he is seeing salvation itself. Jesus and salvation are so connected that you can't separate them. And even just seeing the newborn baby, you're seeing salvation itself. Simeon was holding salvation, salvation in his old hands. Everything that he had longed for in redemption was there as a baby. But I think that leaves us with a challenging question. Sometimes, do we ever long for salvation apart from Jesus? Do we want forgiveness of our sins? Do we want the hope of going to heaven? Do we want any of the benefits of salvation, whether it's blessings or, or, or peace? 
but we don't want a relationship with the person, Jesus Christ. One thing I want you to see here is that's, it's neither possible, nor is that even salvation. It's, it's literally impossible to have salvation apart from Jesus, apart from knowing the person, Jesus. Because when Simeon sees him, he says, this is salvation itself. That's why there's no salvation apart from Christ, because Christ is salvation for us. But I also want us to look at how salvation is described. He defines salvation for us in these verses. Verse 31, he says, salvation is for all peoples. And then he further defines even what that means. He says, it's a light for the Gentiles and glory for Israel. Light for Gentiles and glory for Israel. That's who he means by salvation for all peoples. Gentiles are non-Jews. It's also for the Jews. What he's saying is it's for the world. It's for the nations. It was light for Gentiles, people who had formerly lived outside of God's covenants, who didn't have the special revelation of God's word. They were going to be included. They were going to be brought into God's plan of salvation. What I want us to see is that this isn't just a New Testament thing, the salvation that he's seeing. If you go back, and like way back, if you go all the way back to Eden, the Garden of Eden, there's a commission that is given to Adam and Eve. They're told to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. And that doesn't stop being God's intention for the world when, when, the sin, when sin happens, when the fall happens. God's intention is always that the world would be full of worshipers, would be full of image bearers. And even though God's salvation in the Old Testament starts with a family, it starts small, it grows into a people, and it grows into a nation. And all throughout the Old Testament, we have foretastes of what God is hoping for in salvation of the world. We have people like Ruth, a Gentile who's brought into God's plans. We see in prophecies and psalms that the nations are going to be brought in. We saw that in our call to worship. We saw that in our, in our assurance of pardon. We see it all through the Old Testament in passages uh, like in Isaiah. Um, where am I here? <laughs> I need to read this. Uh, Isaiah 40, uh, 49. Well, he said, here it is. Okay. Isaiah 49, he says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So that's God's hope and that's God's plan. And that's what's happening through Jesus. Salvation is going to the whole world. Jesus is the universal salvation. But if this is true, and then again, it has strong implications for us. If Jesus is the Savior of the whole world, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles also, then it's wrong for us to think and overly connect Christianity with just being a European or just being an American thing. It's not. America is not the light in the world that all the nations need to see and all the other nations are in darkness. The gospel is for all peoples of all nations, not just people in our country, not just people that are like us. The kingdom of God is not confined to an earthly nation or an earthly kingdom. It transcends cultures. It transcends political boundaries in our world. But secondly, if it's true, then we have to ask ourselves if we're, if we're participating in that mission that God has on earth. And I'm not saying that you're going to be called to be a missionary to some unreached people group, although you may, and if you are, that's fantastic, and you should follow God's call. But even if that's not your calling, do you pray for God's global mission? Do you pray that unreached people would hear the gospel and respond, that would see the light of Christ? 
Do you give to missions? Do you recognize that America is a part of the nations that need to hear the gospel? Do you see that sharing the gospel with your neighbor is a part of God's mission to bring the light of the gospel to the ends of the earth? I love what Isaiah 52 says. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nation, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So we see in his song that Jesus is the universal Savior, but just in case you're thinking that I'm drifting towards universalism, I'm not, and we need to emphasize Simeon's second point, which is that Jesus is the divisive Savior, or that Jesus is a dividing Savior. Right after proclaiming joy and good news to the world, Simeon turns to Mary, and look at what he says. He speaks the hard truth about Jesus' life and ministry. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Saying that not everybody is going to receive Jesus by faith as their Savior. He's going to be opposed by many people. That opposition is going to lead to great pain for Mary. It's talking about Jesus' crucifixion and Mary's pain in that. Yes, Jesus is a unifying Savior for all those who receive him by faith, but he's also incredibly divisive. And we all know this. We all experience this. We all see this when we look into the world. Some of us probably experience this with family over Christmas time. We just don't want to have any sort of a serious conversation about Jesus. But Jesus has always been divisive. Some longed for his coming, but others despised him when he came. But as weird as this next thought sounds, I I want you to to bear with me. It's going to sound really strange. I want want you to see that this is a part of Jesus' work. That his divisiveness is a part of why he came. Look at the wording. Verse 34, it says, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Yes, he came for salvation. He came for the rising of many. But he actually was also appointed for the fall of many. And verse 35 sheds some light on this. It says he came to reveal uh, what was really in the hearts and thoughts of people. Those who longed for salvation found it, but those who had hard hearts towards Jesus were found out. Jesus came to reveal what's really in our hearts as well, and that's a weighty thought for us. I want us to think and realize that it's a reality that there are going to be those who say, Lord, Lord, but in the end, Jesus says, I don't even know you. There are going to be people that go to church and do all the outward Christian things, but do not have a heart that loves Jesus, has a heart that despises his commandments and is hard toward him, and in the end, don't enter into the kingdom of God. And that's a hard reality. But we have to know that in the end, Jesus is a divisive savior who separates the sheep from the goats. He reveals what is true. He reveals what's in the heart of man. And we have to see that that's a part of his work. It's nice and happy to talk about him being a universal savior. But we, at, we have to know that he's also a divisive and dividing savior. 
So through the witness of Simeon, we've learned a lot about Jesus and his work, that he's the universal savior, that he's a divisive savior. But lastly, we need to see that Jesus, as the hymn that we're going to close with, says that Jesus is the joy of every longing heart. That's our last point for the day. Jesus is the joy of every longing heart. So we're going to go back to Simeon for a second. While he's holding Jesus, while he's proclaiming all these things about Jesus, another person walks up, prophetess named Anna. And she begins to bear witness about Jesus. And unlike Simeon, we're not told anything that Anna says, which is really interesting. But we learn a lot about who she is, that she is an old lady, that she spent almost her entire life as a widow, and so for years she has spent her time in the temple, constantly worshiping God through fasting and prayer. It's not saying she like lived in the temple, but she spent all of her time there. She was constantly in the temple, worshiping, longing, waiting for God to come and work. And as she walks onto the scene, she sees Jesus. She begins worshiping right along with Simeon, but she does one other thing that's really important for us to note. That she begins to speak about Jesus. And she speaks not just to anybody, tells us who she spoke to. She spoke to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She spoke to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Apparently there was a large number of, or at least a sizable number of Israelites who were waiting, who were longing for God's promises to come to pass. And even in the midst of religious corruption, we see that God was always preserving for himself a remnant of people who longed for him with expectation for his promises Now these people who had been waiting received the news that they had been waiting for. And Jesus brought them great joy. That Jesus was the joy of longing hearts. But I also want you you to notice one other connection in this passage. Notice the similarity between what is said in verse 38 about these people and what is said about Simeon in verse 25. They longed for the redemption of Jerusalem. He longed for the... the Wait for the comfort, consolation of Israel. So the idea that kind of bookends this whole encounter is the idea of waiting. The people that recognized Jesus, the people that worshipped at his coming, were the people that were waiting, the people that were longing. You may have noticed that I skipped over verse 29 when I was talking about the, the song, and maybe you were mad at me for doing that because it's such a great verse, but I just wanted to save it for the end. Simeon had been waiting for the day that he would see the Christ because he had been told that he would. And when he, when he sees him, what's the first thing he says? He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And the word now in there is the word that's supposed to, to, to have weight in that sentence. It's in the, this emphatic position in the Greek. So it's, it's almost like you could say, Lord, now. At this moment, right now, I saw him, and now you're letting your servant depart in peace. I have seen Jesus in all of my longings, all of my expectations. Everything I had been waiting for is so perfectly met that in this very instant, I'm ready to die because I've seen everything I ever need. So we need to recognize that Jesus is everything that we need. Everything we long for is found in Jesus. Augustine said famously, and I think Josh maybe quoted this a couple weeks ago, It's such a good quote. You've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. We long for so many things, and our hearts are expectant for so many things. 
but our greatest longings are always meant to be pointed towards Jesus, who can alone satisfy the desires of our hearts. Seeing Jesus, knowing him, not just like, not just as a set of facts, but as a person, seeing him and knowing him is completely and altogether satisfying. Those things you wait for, whether it's graduation, or becoming an adult, or moving out, or your kids moving out, or marriage, or starting that new job, or retirement, none of those things are going to fix your problem. None of those things are going to satisfy your longings. But Jesus will completely and sufficiently. I remember one conversation that I had with Lexi, and I asked her permission if I could share this. Back when we were engaged, I don't remember where we were. It was probably in the car. I would always drive her back from Janesville, where her family lives, up to Oshkosh when Lexi was a student here. So I'm sure like 90% of our good conversations happened in the car on the drive back. So I'm sure it was there. But I do remember the content of the conversation pretty clearly. Like any engaged couple, for any of you who are engaged or were recently engaged or have been engaged at any point in your life, you know that you're waiting to be married. We were counting down the days, literally, I know you guys probably did this as well, you're counting down the days until your wedding day, and you cannot wait for it to come. And I don't know why, but the, the, the idea, the, the thought about Jesus' second coming came up in our conversation. You're talking about waiting and longing for Jesus, and this question was asked, I don't remember if I asked it or you asked it, but we asked this question, would we be disappointed if Jesus returned the day before our wedding? That's a really sobering question when you're engaged, when your heart is full of all of these longings. Would we feel that we had missed out on something if we didn't get to marry each other? I mean, it was, a, it was a serious heart check for us. Was Jesus more the desire of our hearts? Was he the focus of our longings more than getting married? And the question became this regular reminder. It's not that we're great. It's actually that we were really bad at this and we needed this, this question to constantly point us back to Jesus because, you know, it's so easy to be fixated on each other. This question became a regular reminder for us that our longing for marriage should only ever point us to a greater longing that we should have. All of our longings are faint shadows and images of a longing that should burn within us to see Jesus, to know him. And for us, it was a desire to partake in the wedding feast of the Lamb, that we had a better wedding than our own wedding to look forward to when we were longing for Jesus. So in a way, even those of us, even if we know Jesus in this life, we know him already, we're still waiting, right? We're still longing and yearning. We long for his return. We long to see Jesus face to face like Simeon. We get to see him. And the Israelites in that day, they longed for the consolation of Israel. When we, like them, see that things are not as they should be, our response is to long, to have a heart that looks in faith to the day that Jesus returns and makes all things new. Like I said at the very beginning, Longing is a regular part of the posture of the Christian heart. So what do you do when you see your sin? Well, we confess our sin, we repent, but we long. We know that we're not going to be freed from this sinful body until the day that Christ returns and we go to be with him. So we long for Jesus when we see our sin. When we see our fallen world, we see the broken nature of our world, we're to long for Jesus. When we see pain, when we feel pain, we long for Jesus. When we see corruption, we long for Jesus. Not all people long for Jesus, but for the people who do, from every tribe and nation and people, they find in Jesus. For those who long, they find in him salvation 
and they find in him all satisfying joy. So much of our passage this morning is summed up in the whole first verse of our final song. We're going to sing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And uh, Daniel and Lexi, you guys can actually come up. I'm just going to read this and pray. But this is the first verse of our final song. I want to read, read it for us before we sing. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, notice that word from our passage, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Let's pray. Jesus, you truly are the joy of every longing heart, but we feel the pull in our hearts to long for other things, a desire to to love things more than you. We just ask that you would reorient our eyes to you, that we would look to you for satisfaction and joy, that we would wait with expectation for the day that you return, that we get to dwell with you, that we get to see your face and worship you for all eternity with all of those who are your people from every nation on earth. Jesus, help us to find joy in this hope. We pray this in your name. Amen. So let's stand together.